verse 24. John chapter 4 and verse 24. This will be the 15th in our series of sermons on the whole counsel of God dealing with this particular subject that we dealt with last Sunday, and that is the nature of God, that he is a spiritual being, that God is a spiritual being, and they that would worship him must worship him in the realm of the spirit as opposed to the external and the physical. In John chapter 4 and verse 24, we took as a text, God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. We went through many, many scriptures last week dealing with the Old Testament in the presentation of God. We dealt with several scriptures dealing with the state, the fact that no man has seen God at any time. We went through the Old Testament and took several passages of scripture in which that individuals claimed to have seen a glimpse of the glory or the person of God. We found out that all of these texts that these individuals either saw uh, an angel in human form or else they saw the incarnate Christ in the New Testament, but that no man has ever seen the actual form of God because God is a spirit and a spirit does not have flesh and bones. And we found out in our closing application last Sunday that the importance of this is that it's a great guard against idolatry. Wherever that you go and you find false religions, you have individuals that are worshiping some form of idols, whether they've carved them out of a piece of wood or whether they have formed them in their mind, if they conceive of God in the realm of the carnal, the physical, the material, then they have a false conception of God. And so the fact that God is a spirit and that this is one of the foundational truths of the scripture is a great guard against idolatry in any form. Now we want to take three other applications of this truth that God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him within the realm of the spirit uh, this morning as it relates to our lives because we believe that these are very important. Why is it important? to recognize that God is a spiritual being. The first one we would submit to you today is that it is absolutely necessary for the sinner's justification. That is, the importance that God is a spirit is absolutely necessary to understand before that a sinner can have a true grasp of what it means to be saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. If you're here today and you have some carnal or physical conception of God and that in order for you to be saved, you must perform some physical or carnal act in order to be brought into a saving relationship with this God, then my friend, I fear, but you're still lacking in what it means to come to a true saving relationship with Jesus Christ. That is, if you have a conception that in order for you to be brought into a right relationship with this spiritual being, that you must perform some act in the physical realm, however great or however minor that might be, then it's an indication that you still have not come to the place 
where the Bible says that they that worship God must worship him in the realm of the Spirit and in truth. Jesus said, The hour cometh and now is when the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. Now, how is it related, this thing of knowing God as a spiritual being and being saved? I invite your attention to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6. Here we read these words, beginning in verse 3. The Apostle Paul says, If our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. Now notice here's a clear statement. Some people are lost, and whoever is lost, they do not have a true understanding of what the gospel is. They may have it intellectually, but still they're blinded to its truth, to its beauty. Now, how did this take place? In whom the God of this world, that is Satan, hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. Now, notice verse 6. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, how do these individuals here at Corinth, that Paul includes himself with, what is the difference between them and these individuals whom he's describing as being lost? God has shined in a special way in revealing the knowledge of God in the full person of Jesus Christ. I notice it's described as a revelation of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And immediately those who would read their Bible only with a carnal and a physical understanding, they would try to picture what the physical face of Jesus looks like. But that's not what Paul is emphasizing at all. God is not revealed in the physical, facial features of Jesus, for no one knows what those features are that is here today. But when we speak of the face of a person, we're speaking of that characteristic which reveals their whole personality, their whole character, who they are. You remember last week, those of you that were here, we found that Moses asked for a vision of God. And God said, Moses, I will be merciful unto whom I will be merciful. And he said, No man shall see my face, but I will show you a little bit of my hinder part, or I'll show you a portion of my glory. But you will not see the fullness of my glory, for no man can see that in the body and live. So when we're talking about that the face of Jesus Christ we're talking about that which reveals the fullness of a person's personality, not in the physical realm. Well, I can look at you this morning, and I can watch the reactions upon your face, and it tells me something about your person and your character. Have you ever talked with certain individuals? Maybe you, they, you meet them on a street corner, and they want to sell you something, and they've got those little shifty eyes running here and there, and they can't look you right in the eye when they're trying to talk with you. As you watch the facial features of a person, you can get to know something about that person. And so when Paul is saying that we have been given a revelation of the glory of God 
It has come through an understanding of the fullness of the person and work of his Son, Jesus Christ. Now, before you can be saved, you must be given a revelation from God of Jesus Christ, who he is, the incarnate Son of God, and what he came to do. He came to seek and to save that which is lost. Now, that's why it is absolutely futile Although God has ordained it, it pleased him through the foolishness of preaching to save them that are lost. But this is where one of the major errors has crept into modern evangelicalism, is the fact that individuals come along and they think that all that is necessary to get a person to be a Christian, a true Christian, is just to read them a few verses out of the Bible and then ask them if they will intellectually nod their head yes to the propositions that are given. And so when they do that, then they are pronounced having come to Christ or having been saved. And yet the entire Bible says that no man can come to the Father except the Spirit of God draw him. It takes more than just an intellectual understanding of the Scriptures. It takes a revelation of the glory of God revealed to the soulish nature of man, revealing the person and work of his Son, Jesus Christ. And that is a spiritual work. It's not within the physical realm. It's within the realm of our very spiritual being, whereby that we must worship and serve God in spirit and in truth. So you may be here this morning and you may have thought, well, I'm a Christian, I'm, I have become a, a member of this church, and if I ask you, well, what is the reason that you have this hope? And you would immediately say, well, back so many years ago, I went through the waters of baptism. Now, my friend, that's in the physical realm. And God does not dwell in the realm of the physical. You may, some others may say, well, I went to a particular church and I went down to the front and the priest put a wafer on my tongue and he told me I received the grace of God through receiving that wafer. That's in the external. And God does not dwell in the realm of the external and the visible. And coming to Jesus Christ is not something that one performs in the external realm. And yet there may be some here this morning and you may say, no, I didn't trust in my baptism. I didn't trust in the fact that someone told me that I received grace through communion. But preacher, I believe I was saved because in a certain and such meeting I walked down the aisle of a church when an evangelist gave an invitation and I moved from that third pew out there and I came down here and I prayed a prayer and he pronounced me forgiven. My friend, that's just as much in the physical realm as when you go to a church and the priest says, put out your tongue, and he puts the wafer on it. Coming to Christ is not coming to the baptismal waters. Coming to Christ is not coming to communion. Coming to Christ is not coming to an altar. Coming to Jesus Christ is coming to the person and work of him as revealed in the gospel. And that's a spiritual coming. And so if your hope is built upon some other realm, in the realm of the physical, so that when you stand before God and you hear the question, what right do you have to enter into my kingdom? 
Well, then you immediately pull out something and say, here's what I did, and so and so. Or will you just point to your representative, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lived and died on your behalf? Will you have a hope that is anchored in Christ, or will it be in something in the physical realm? This is not just something to tickle the intellect. This is serious business. It involves the destiny of our very souls. What it means to come to Christ. So the fact that God is a spirit, it is also necessary that this be understood properly before a person can be justified by true saving faith. And then the second application of this great truth is that it not only is necessary for the sinner's salvation, but it enlarges the believer's sanctification. If you conceive of God in some physical realm, you'll not make much progress in your life spiritually. I want to draw your attention to a couple of uh, verses this morning. First, from the Old Testament book of Isaiah, chapter 6 and verse 1. I want us to look here at Isaiah when he saw a vision of who God was, the effect it had upon his life. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. And then so more uh, other descriptions. In verse, uh, verse 5, notice, Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now what am I saying is simply this. Once we are initially justified, then there is begun a process which is called sanctification. That is becoming more like Jesus Christ daily, day by day. And you will not become more like Jesus Christ without a vision now. I'm not talking in the physical realm. I'm not talking about you going out some night and seeing something physical in the sky like the third century king did when he thought he saw the Christ or the cross, a flaming cross, and therefore well, he decided since he was the emperor of Rome, that meant that God would have the Christian religion to be the official Roman religion. No, that's not what we're talking about. When we're talking about a vision of God, we're talking about seeing who he is, high and lifted up and ruling over all. And the effect that this had upon Isaiah was that he said, Oh, I'm an unclean man. But it didn't stop there because God in his grace produced that in Isaiah's experience and he sent an angel or an angelic being to come and to help cleanse his life. Now, I run across many individuals that profess that they have been truly regenerated, truly come to Christ, and yet there's a struggling in their daily life. Now, don't get me wrong. The believer's experience with Christ is going to be a daily struggle because we have Satan to contend with, we have the wiles of the flesh to contend with. But I'm talking about those who never seem to have any victory over sin in their daily experience. Now, there's a reason for this. If we conceive of God in physical, carnal conceptions, 
And when we read the Bible, all we see is just the material, then we'll never become more like Christ because becoming more like him is becoming more like the Father who is high and lifted up and who is holy. And if we're going to become like God, then it involves a revelation of the nature of God to us. I invite your attention to the 10th chapter of Luke to show how what has happened in many individuals' lives today and why their daily experience is lacking. In Luke chapter 10, and I believe it is, and verse, uh, let's see, verse 38, Now it came to pass, as they went, that he entered into a certain village, and a certain woman named Martha received him into her house. She had a sister called Mary, which also, now note this very carefully, sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was cumbered about with much serving and came to him and said, Lord, dost thou not care that my sister hath left me alone to serve, or to serve alone? Bid her therefore that she help me. And Jesus answered and said unto her, Martha, Martha, thou art careful and troubled about many things, but one thing is needful, and Mary hath chosen that good part which shall not be taken away. All the depths of the words that are here, but we haven't time to develop all of this text. Maybe someday God will give this for us to preach upon. But here are two sisters. Jesus comes to their house. Both of them are followers of him. The one sister, when Christ comes, places herself at the feet of Christ and listens to what he has to say. And the other one is all wrapped up trying to do something for Jesus. And these are two classic examples of modern-day Christianity in which that the one emphasis is get people involved, get them active, get them doing this and this and this and this, and the other one is having them set at the feet of Christ and actually become something. My friend, you will never do anything for God that will be pleasing until you first of all become something for Jesus Christ. And here this was the one thing that Mary had chosen the good part. That is, she was learning more and more about her relationship with the Lord. And this was in turn that which was needful. The modern church has the conception that as soon as you get somebody to make a profession of faith, then the first thing you need to do is to get them involved in this activity and that activity, doing this and this and this and this. And what happens? They do not have the time to sit and to meditate at the feet of Christ and recognize what it means to know him and to be able to have the victory over sin in their daily lives. They're so busy going about doing everything and running here and there that they don't have time to really meditate upon the person and work of Jesus Christ. Is it any wonder, then, why we have such a struggling form of Christianity? Uh, now, this is not just in the realm of the layman. This is in the realm of preachers. I could name some of the, the ministers that probably some of you may have heard. And I've had dinner with them. They've pastored churches of 2,000. And in the eyes of their congregation, in the eyes of their community, they're 
extremely successful, and yet you get them by themselves, and they moan and they complain because they don't have time to do this or don't have time to do that, or they complain about the inspirituality of their people. And I, I like to start doing that because that gives me a little opportunity to witness unto them. We talk about witnessing uh, and being a missionary. I believe God has particularly raised me up to be a missionary to modern-day preachers. Not for them, but to them. Because most modern-day preachers need a missionary. They need to have someone explain to them what's going on in their lives. And so here's what the modern-day preacher, the way he carries about his daily life. He starts out, he's running here and here and here and here. He does not have time to meditate in God's Word and find God's direction because he's so busy in activities going here and there and there that he just suddenly he'll stop and say, Now, Lord, bless my activities. See? And whatever's happening, why well, then he'll somehow give lip service to what the Lord has done. But I want us to look into the pages of God's Word and see that until you and I become something, until we know what it is to have a vital relationship with Jesus Christ, we may be wrapped up in this and this and this and this, but when you get all of those men off to the side, I had heard of one that pastors a church now runs some 20,000 in Sunday school every week. And a good friend of mine sat at lunch with him, and you know what that man replied about life? He said, boy, it's a rat race, isn't it? How would you like to be the pastor of a church with 20,000 people in Sunday school and then describe your Christian experience as a rat race? I'm saying this is the same thing that Martha was cumbered about with much serving. And she became jealous of Mary, who, Brother Powell, she wasn't doing anything. <laughs> See? We have individuals that go around to think that it is their prerogative to look down on other Christians and say, that Christian isn't doing anything or that church isn't doing anything. And these are the very individuals that are cumbered about with much serving, and yet if they would look in the words of Christ, he would tell them the same thing today. You're majoring on the minor and minoring on the major thing. Mary has chosen that one thing which was needful. And listen, when the trials come, it won't be taken away from her. When Lazarus will die, there will be insights given to Mary that Martha knows nothing about. Now, you watch the people that are so busy, quote, serving the Lord, unquote, when financial, physical, or spiritual adversity comes. You watch what happens to them. They haven't taken time to become like Christ, and they don't stand. You see, the thing of becoming like Christ is in the, in the spiritual realm. It's sitting at the feet of Christ and listening to what he has to minister unto us. You say, well, that means nobody get anything done. My friend, when you become like Christ, you cannot hide that light. There was something about Jesus Christ that attracted people because of who and what he was. 
And when people become like Christ, there will be a spiritual attraction. But you see, we have gotten this whole thing out of proportion today to where that the modern churches think that in order to influence the world, we must have hundreds of activities going on all the time, and the world doesn't see anything in modern-day Christianity that it desires. You go out and call on the average person today and try to get them to come to church, and you, they start saying, well, my, you mean if I come, I've got, if I start become a Christian, I'm going to have to go to the Monday night uh, ladies' meeting, I'm going to have to go to the Tuesday night young people's meeting, Wednesday night prayer meeting, Thursday night visitation, Friday this activity and that activity. You mean this is what it is to be a Christian? I can't participate in all of that. Because this is the modern connotation that in order to be a zealous Christian, you have to be doing this and this and this and this. And so the priorities is that the world sees this, but then they asked the question like Gandhi did when he was asked, why are you not a Christian? This was the great leader over in India, and he said this. He said, there's one reason why I've always admired the person, Jesus Christ, but there's one reason why I haven't become a Christian. I've never seen one. I've never seen one. May that speak to us here in Osceola, Missouri. May it speak to Jim Gables to tell him that in spite of all the preparations of the sermons that he undertakes, in spite of all the activities that he does, what the world is really looking for is to see whether there's been a change of life in my life, to see whether Christ has become real to me. Now, how am I going to become more like Christ? It's not by doing this and this and this, but my friend, it's by sitting at the feet of Christ and seeing what his person and work is on behalf of believers. Now, one more point before we close. Not only is it important for the sinner's justification and the believer's sanctification, but the fact that God is a spirit is important to encourage the believer's glorification. One day the struggle is going to be over. One day there's not going to be any more error. No more hesitancy to serve God. One day we're going to be with him forever. I want to invite your attention to the last book in the Bible, Revelation chapter 22 and verse 4, which gives us a characteristic of what the eternal state will be like where we shall be with God in glory. Listen carefully. Revelation chapter 22, verse 3, And there shall be no more curse than the throne of God, and the Lamb of God shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. Now note this phrase, and they shall see his face. You see that? Now, our text that we've been studying the last couple of weeks, no man has ever seen the face of God. That is the fullness of God. But in that eternal state, now we see through a glass darkly, but then we shall see face to face. Then we will have all of the fullness that our being is capable of receiving, being filled with the knowledge of God. And my friend, that will excite the believer. The true believer desires to know more about God. Let me close by giving this illustration. Can you think of someone in your life that seemed to be such a special person 
that when you were around them, you just sat back and let them do the talking? Can you think of anyone like that? That their mannerism, the characteristics that they had, the wisdom they had, you so appreciated that that you sat back and just bathed in what they had to say. I've come across three or four people like that in, in my life. And oh, how rewarding those experiences are to be able to sit in the presence of a person who has something that they can impart to you that is of great value to you. And you grow to appreciate those people, and you would give money if necessary to spend an hour having them talk with you. Now, there aren't many people like that, but I've come across three or four. But I long to be in their presence because of what they have to say and what a value it is to my life. Now, listen, folks. That is the essence of knowing God. You say, what are we going to do in that eternal state? We're going to know God. And we're going to bask in the presence of being able to have a full understanding of our being, which is capable of, of knowing the person of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And as he reveals himself unto us, the Bible says that there we shall see his face. Nothing hid anymore. Now then, I have to struggle as I go through my experience in this life. And oh, there are great times in which that I have with the Lord, and then I'll have to acknowledge there are some lonely times I have with the Lord. Times in which that as I look through these windows and I can see there's light out there, but I can't make it out. But I know there's light, and I seek out after that light. But you know what's going to happen when I'm taken out of this body and taken into the next world? Those stained glass windows are going to be taken out, and I shall see God in his fullness face to face. And that's what I long and hunger after. Because just the glimpse that I have of the person and the work of Christ now causes my soul to rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. And if that is but a taste, what shall the fullness be when we're removed from this body and taken into the eternal abode of God? You see the necessity then of knowing God in the spiritual realm, not in the physical, but in the realm of the spirit, and they who would worship God must worship him in the realm of the spirit and in truth.